and welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast, Pressurized, a short, punchy version of our main feed that gets right to the scientific point. If you like what you hear, you'd like to hear the full episode, you can find it in the same feed. And now, to get right to the point. Since moving down here, I've been exposed to lots of interesting people, and I've been learning a great deal from them. And one of those people who I've been assaulting with my friendship has given me a wider appreciation to the the mollusks beyond the the squids and octopi the the cephalopods but basically beyond the things beyond the snails pretending to be fish i've got a newfound appreciation for the for the wider groups so let's have a chat with kerry walton I'm joined by Kerry Walton, malacologist and invertebrate curator here at the Museum of New Zealand, Te Papa. So I hoped I had at least a broad grasp over habitat types and functional groups and what's going on out there, but you will regularly just mention offhand something that I had absolutely no idea about. You showed me a snail yesterday with a bivalve shell, so a snail that opens like a muscle, and I wasn't ready for that. So I wanted to have a little chat about the wider mollusk group. We've done squids and octopuses. And they, I'd say, are the, the charismatic megafauna, that, that cursed term. But there is a lot of unsung groups within mollusks. So I wanted to broaden the horizon a little bit. So thanks for coming on and having a chat. Thanks for having me. So we were chatting a little bit yesterday about why it is so important to have a, a grasp of the molluscan diversity. And you were giving me a few examples of the wider things you can tell just from having a decent understanding of the mollusk component to say a habitat or adjacent habitats. Yeah, it's it's not unique to mollusks, but mollusks are probably the best example where you can use very high level of knowledge of one group to extrapolate and answer a bigger picture questions about ecosystem form and function and diversity. Mollusks have a couple of advantages. For one, they're one of the largest animal groups there is, second only to the arthropods which eat insects, crustaceans. And we've got between 200 and 300,000 living mollusk species. And the majority of those, um, roughly 90%, produce a shell, which has a relatively high preservation potential. And what that means is you can get um, presence-absence data for mollusks, which you couldn't for the majority of soft-bodied organisms. And remarkably, of the roughly 4,500 living species we have in New Zealand, the majority have never been seen alive or collected alive. We believe, we, we assume their extent on the basis of um, known rates of shell degradation, but we collect their shells from death assemblages by dredging at the base of seamounts or canyons, for example, or for terrestrial species by sieving leaf litter and getting the small arboreal snails out of it that way. So it's a combination of like this really high diversity and the parts of them that we can identify to sort of quite high level, like species level, preserve really well. Yeah, so high diversity, high preservation potential, the fact they produce a shell is very advantageous. And they are, there are some groups which are very much the exception, but most mollusk species can be identifiable with a degree of confidence by an expert to species level from the shell alone. You don't need to dissect the anatomy, you don't need to sequence them. You were telling me that about how well they preserve, that they sort of do a, a self-buffering thing once they've uh, decomposed to a certain level, and then you were talking about finding what would be a fossil any, any other time. It, it sort of looks like it died yesterday. They just preserve incredibly well. There was a study published a few years ago that was carbon dating what looked like fresh shells on a beach. And while the majority were fresh in the sense of 
weeks to months old, some of them were thousands of years old. And the difference was barely perceptible with the naked eye. So we often make this distinction between recent and fossil, and people will fight you over those terms, especially if you throw subfossil into the mix. Great way to annoy a few paleontologists. But um, fossilization is the process of mineral replacement. Shells are minerals, and the rate of mineral replacement in which minerals actually get replaced is um, contextual on the depositional setting, what the sediment contains, different pH values, and so on. So what we have, if you've got a carbonate-rich deposit, which might be a bryozoan bed or a shell bed, where the majority of the sand or mud has a high carbonate content, that self-buffers against acidic effect of the seawater. And it means those shells can remain looking extremely fresh for perhaps 10,000 years or more. And conversely, if you have suboptimal conditions, a mud that has a low carbonate content, for example, you can have a living mollusk that hasn't even bothered to die yet that's already got a partially fossilised <laughs> shell. It's lived long enough to start fossilising. <laughs> yeah, effectively, yes. Or at least a highly eroded shell is more common for deeper water taxa. Well, that's cool. And they can they can also pass through sort of predator digestive tracts as well. Like even, even fish poop can still have some recognisable material there. Yeah, going through fish guts is one of the easiest ways to collect uh, deep sea mollusks, especially when they're um, from a hard bottom habitat that would be difficult to sample otherwise. Yeah, a lot of the early deep sea mollusk collecting, um, in particular by shell collectors as well, is done by going through fish guts, and they're in a remarkable state of preservation. Often the shells will pass through completely intact. For some species, it's hypothesized that the animal will pass through living, where they can seal the shell off completely with their opercula, and that's one potential means of dispersal for some of these species. Generally, the deeper you go, the, the fish will be more inclined to eat whatever they encounter. So most deep-sea fish that are frequently in contact with the bottom will nibble away at a mollusk where visible. Anything you stick out gets nibbled on. So yeah, they're quite good good sampling tools. Like a lot of our really good Antarctic stuff is thrown up by ice fish. <laughs> Things we never catch in the nets, they vomit up. So they do the sampling for us. And you were saying how this is this is really handy for maybe habitats that are really difficult to sample, like rocky, stony habitats where we, we couldn't pull a dredge. The presence of these shells sort of rolling downhill and in the guts of fish that are living in the area indicates that this habitat is present, even if we, we can't sample it directly. Absolutely. Um, the, the problem with relying on a collection built from X fish gut material is it's often poorly localised. You might have a region if you're lucky, but that's about it. But um, one of the big advantages of so many mollusks passing through fish is that it means at the bottom of seamounts that are below scuba depth, hard structure habitats that are quite difficult to sample. You risk losing a lot of gear and you risk damaging a lot of probably sensitive coral habitats. So you don't want to go in recklessly to those. By sampling around the base of seamounts or in the bottom of submarine canyons, you get all of these shells that have accumulated over centuries or millennia, potentially, depending on the sediment type, um, from higher up on those canyons walls and by looking at those shells we can identify certain characteristics as much as a third perhaps more of mollusks are obligate either parasites or in a commensal relationship with certain corals sponges sea cucumbers so we can by having a good understanding of the um, ecology of some of these species by having good natural history collections to more confidently say this this genus feeds only on that genus or lives between this depth range and that depth range we can start to reconstruct the unsampled habitats above by looking at this death assemblage in the bottom of the seamount or canyon it's it's a total tangent on the on the deep sea element but 
I just thought it was fascinating. You were about this sort of direct development and not straying very far. You were telling me about some of the land snails here in New Zealand. Our species just exists under one tree and they never really move. <laughs> land snails are already the brunt of quite fair jokes about their mobility, but it's the herbivorous ones that often take that to the next level. In, in New Zealand, a lot of our species have slow metabolisms. They live quite long. Some of our larger land snails can live for several decades, and the herbivorous ones, if they're in suitable habitat underneath a food tree, they don't move at all. Mark recapture studies have comedically failed to detect movement over years <laughs> for some of these species, and while we can't rule out limited movement and then homing behaviour, for the most part, the leaves that they eat fall on them and they eat the leaves. And you've got to almost wonder whether the rate of leaf consumption has to fairly exactly equal the rate of leaf falling. So they don't get smothered or starved. <laughs> that would be about the least ceremonious possible end, although perhaps that might be a desired way to go, I don't know. Oh, it feels like those people that you get well into old age and have never gone on holiday anywhere. It's like, why would I go anywhere? It's the best thing here. Which is fair enough if your food is just falling on you from the sky and that's all you've ever known. Perhaps that's the snaily equivalent of death by chocolate. Yeah, okay. The okay. thoughts of snails of remain elusive to us. <laughs> but it makes them incredibly vulnerable. It's a worry. It does, yes. A lot of the larger snails are popular with shell collectors. They're popular with a lot of the introduced predators that we have. Um, rats, mice, possums, pigs... And on top of that, we've got browsing by ungulates, goats and deer, which is disturbing the litter and removing a lot of the undergrowth, which results in a drier forest or an easier forest for the predators to forage in. So coupling all of that with climate change, that's exacerbating uh, the quite serious conservation status of many of these larger terrestrial mollusks. Yeah, it's such a perfect balance. It doesn't take much to nudge that off course. Sorry for the tangent, but I just I, you told me about that and I found that amazing. So to... to get into the sort of deep sea realm i feel like the wider mollusks beyond the the squids and octopus beyond the the cephalopods seem to get missed out so i wanted to give them a chance to to sort of take the spotlight really and there was a few you mentioned that were totally new to me some of the real obligate ones on whale carcasses and large carcasses that fall to the seabed and we we've even had an episode on this i have supposedly advised about making educational content around these things and i had no idea these even existed you found some incredibly niche whale fall mollusks to say the non-cephalopod mollusks are missing out sounds like a very fish biologist perspective. <laughs> no, I feel they need to be they need to be championed. They need to be in the public knowledge. <laughs> They're often talked about in different circles. Mm. The, the plushies aren't quite as comfortable. They, they tend to be spiky. Or, or I was I famously had a um, plastic seven four seven jet instead of a teddy bear when I was a kid, and I'd wake up with a wing impression on my cheek every morning and look ridiculous. <laughs> Maybe that's the that's early the, yeah. signs your child might become a mollicologist. A fondness for hard, pointy things. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. So, yeah, what, what were some of these like really specialised whalefall mollusks? The core of a whalefall community often comes down after you've had the initial successive cycles of the detritivores feeding on the, the flesh itself. You have bacterial action producing hydrogen sulphide as the bones decay. And the bones of cetaceans are much more oil-rich than the bones of equivalently-sized fish. Well, equivalently-sized bones, perhaps the fish might not be the same size. So they produce a lot more hydrogen sulphide, so you end up with these quite unique communities that have some semblance, certainly ecologically, with hydrothermal vent and methane seep communities. And at family and sometimes genus level, you get a lot of the same species. There are very few species that are actually in common between those different habitat types. At the core, 
from a mollusk perspective, or at least the most visible faunal element of these whale falls, would be the little bathymodioline mussels, of which there's a variety of genera. And there have been a few projects that said, oh, we, we think we've got a couple of things here, we'll do a bit of sequencing, and after reaching half a dozen... How hard can it be? ...half a dozen <laughs> species from eight samples, they go, oh, let's, let's go do something else. It's a nice day, isn't it? <laughs> So we've, we've got a considerable diversity of small mussel species that are unique to whalefall environments here in the South Pacific, and they are found throughout the world as well. And these mussels are closely related to the hydrothermal vent giant mussels. They've got bacteria that they farm in their gills, which metabolise sugars from the hydrogen sulphide, and the mussels all absorb that sugar as their main form of nutrition. But we have a whole bunch of more easily overlooked invertebrates and mollusks in particular. There are dozens of limpet species that are unique to organic falls and bones, squid beaks that are rotting, skate egg cases that are rotting. And these are these are specialists to each one of these. Yep. <laughs> and then one that we, my colleague um, Bruce Marshall and I named um, a couple of years ago here at Tapapa was one we only discovered relatively recently that is unique to decaying baleen. And as far as I'm aware, that's the only species that has that unique habitat. And it's a it's a bit of a strange shape too. Limpets haven't got a huge degree of flexibility in what shape they can be, perhaps. It's a cone, but it's a cone that sits on top of a cylinder. And one of the neat things about that is if you look at the um, gap between the different scoots of this baleen, these limpets precisely compartmentalise <laughs> that gap. The cylinder height is roughly half of the width of the gap. So you can have limpets on either side of the scoot and their little cones can interlock in the middle. So they're remarkably efficient at occupying almost all of the exposed surface of this decaying baleen. So this is the this is the baleen, the filter feeding whales, the huge hair-like filters that sort of they have instead of teeth. The hair-like is, is a key point too because it um, chemically is hair-like. It's keratin. It's a remarkably inert, long protein chain substance. It's that anything derives nutrition from it at all was quite a surprise. Let alone dedicate your life to it. <laughs> yes, indeed. And I, I wouldn't want to guess the exact mechanisms of how it does so. With the bone-eating worms, there was a theory that they had evolved, and actually we've seen, we've seen the scars that they'd evolved in sort of giant marine reptiles. And then when the whales came along, they sort of made that jump. But keratin in the deep sea seems very specific so would these be a more recent sort of development and where would they have come from what were they eating before there was whales i love that question and i've got no idea <laughs> there would have been keratin on ancient turtle carapaces so there would have been oh. some analogous structures that they might have transitioned from but what that might be i couldn't tell you for most of these species they're small mussels they're small limpets we have extensive fossil records of small mussels and limpets but confidently equating this one as the common ancestor or direct descendant of that one is bold shall we say <laughs> given the considerable diversity of these groups and indeed how much molecular tools have revised how we view their relationships and the um, rate at which they diversified in more recent years you have a whole five chemosymbiotic bivalve families, of which the mussels are one, where they don't live necessarily directly attached to the bones themselves, which the mussels do, they'll often live in the um, organically enriched sediments adjacent to these falls. And one of them that I worked on a few years ago, the Solomayids, ancestral group, I don't like calling them ancient, or they're living dinosaurs, they've evolved just as long as everything else and everything that's alive is living, so it's these uh, misnomers that tend to trigger me. But <laughs> remarkably... 
similar fossils can be found as far back as the Jurassic, tens of many tens of millions of years ago. And you could be mistaken for thinking they're conspecific, the, the levels of similarity are remarkable. But what you want to keep in mind is the habitat is 30 centimetres deep in mud. Mud hasn't changed very much. There isn't mud too. Worms have looked like worms for hundreds of millions <laughs> of years because a worm is a very good shape to be if you live like a worm. And cylindrical and shiny and a bit simple is a great shape to be if you live deep in mud. You don't have to impress anybody. You don't. You just squirt the water occasionally and you, that's your life sorted. But one of the things I do love about these groups, you get different species at hydrothermal vents, at methane seeps, at some of these organic falls but there's one i think it's in japan that was found in a polluted estuary near a wig factory and there is a thick layer of human hair no in this estuary <laughs> and this has created an anaerobic anoxic chemosymbiotic environment so digging through the sediments in some of these polluted estuaries you see these clams that are as happy as larry with the assumption <laughs> that larry is relatively happy but you didn't say happy as a clown i didn't know <laughs> And yeah, I regret just... it. <laughs> that is weird. That is so weird. And and these are, well, I guess not even deeper because you get anoxic conditions in, in lots of places, but living on human wig hair is particularly weird. I like that a lot. And so there's fundamental similarities when all these chemosynthetic habitats. So we see not the same species, but similar genera and, and families between the hydrothermal vents and the say the whale falls or other other reducing environments are there any unique adaptations to the vents in particular i know you've done quite a bit of work on vents a lot of my work on vents has been trying to identify these often very limited or eroded samples it's a, a toxic environment it's a deep sea environment and it's a hard to sample environment so we've got one or two shells collected by an rov or a submersible and they all look the same the main thing you need to overcome is the ephemeral nature of venting. Vent systems will go through periods of activity and inactivity, and then the nature of the venting might change as well, the temperature or the mineral content. So if you're a sessile benthic invertebrate, you can't move, you get what you're given, and your vent says, oh, I'm not going to do anything this week, I'm taking a break, you're not going to be around for very long. So one of the key adaptations is the long-lived larvae to allow, through these venting systems, persistence of taxa, where at any individual site might be a little bit vulnerable to some of the fluid dynamics of the vent itself. Uh, one of the most, I don't know if charismatic megafauna is appropriate, but one of the more popularised groups are the chainmail snail or scaly foot gastropod. Um, I prefer the form of it, no one uses it. It's a group we unfortunately don't have in New Zealand. They grow to about three or four centimetres and with, with the vents you get an extreme amount of heavy metals and various other things that are often toxic to life coming out of the water. And when you're looking at a black smoker or a white smoker, those are precipitates that are in liquid state when under pressure in the crust itself. But as they emerge and that pressure and temperature is released, they condense and that's how we get these chimneys forming of heavy metals and some of the lighter elements generally form the clouds of the black and white smokers, which differ in what those elements actually happen to be. So much as the mangrove tree has to evolve a way to remove salt, 
when it's in a high salt environment that's um, excessively salty for healthy life. In some of these vent environments, the taxa have to evolve a manner of getting rid of some of the heavy metals that they ingest incidentally as part of their diet. And the chainmail snail does this by secreting literal metal scales that line its foot, and it resembles dragon skin. I think they're remarkable. They're very goth. They're, and there's colour variations as well. There's like reds and blacks, and they're very cool looking. Yeah, there, there's a pale one. and They, they would be a unremarkable brown, but they often have other precipitates forming on them. So a lot of the colours we see of some of these deep-sea mollusks, particularly in these unique environments, are a result of um, subsequent deposition of precipitates. And that's true for freshwater species in particular as well, where a lot of them appear to be black, and that's manganese or other minerals that have accumulated on the surface of the shell naturally, but not through any conscious process of the shell itself or metabolism of the shell itself. Oh. Could they be the sort of starting nucleus of a lot of manganese nodules? Could there be a tiny little shell in the middle of a lot of those? I suspect so, but I don't know if I want to go public saying that because I don't know. <laughs> I think that's exactly what's going on here. Because yeah. oh, there's been like megalodon teeth and things like that. I, don't, I can't filter signal from noise when it comes to hypey things like that. But if they're precipitating manganese in life, then surely after a few hundred years... Also wanted to touch upon the pelagics because we, me and Alan especially, particularly like stuff on the bottom, mainly because you can send gear and not miss. But there is the pteropods and a few other pelagic mollusks as well, isn't there? Yes. Um, I don't want to be quoted as saying I'm a bottom man myself, <laughs> but separate to the cephalopods, we've got a couple of different gastropod groups that are pelagic. Well, we've got quite a few, actually. We've got the violet snails, Janthina, which are these extremely vivid purple or violet gastropods. They can grow up to about three centimetres and they float on the surface by forming bubble rafts. And they've actually got counter shading where the largest species, Janthina, Janthina, has a pale spire, which is the part that points down. So when viewed from the bottom, it resembles the sunlight and is mm. not that visible to a would-be predator. Oh, it actually looks like a sunbeam. And these guys float on the surface and they hunt Portuguese man-of-war, quote-unquote jellyfish. So there's, there's some unique species like that. We've got pelagic nudibranchs. We've got a couple of other very obscure pelagic groups. Perhaps the most ecologically important would be the pteropods, or sea butterflies, which are abundant and largely unknown to most people because they seldom wash up. Um, not all of them produce shells, but most of them do, and they'll be in the order of... A couple of millimetres up to the largest would be just shy of two centimetres in its shell. The animal itself might be twice that size. And just with many of the other zooplankton, they'll float up and down according to what time of day it is. And they form a substantial proportion of the diet for a very large amount of pelagic fish species. Getting on to the really deep stuff, so long beyond when the fish give up, we're getting mollusks right to the bottom of the deep trenches. And... I was always surprised at how, well, they're sort of protonaceous. There isn't, the shell feels like a soft membrane rather than a, a, a classic sort of gastropod snail shell. What's, what's going on down there? That is probably in large a part of the average mineral composition of the sediment in which these animals are living. Some of the vent species, Alvinaconca is a great example. It's a 
looks like a garden snail. It's about that size and shape, except it's almost entirely the um, chitinous exoskeleton. So most shells are comprised of two main layers. Um, shell biologists be screaming, there's dozens of different layers or sub-layers, and that's completely true. But for simplicity's sake, there's a, a carbonate layer, which is the inside, or what you might think of as the shell itself. And then you've got a, what is usually a thinner outer layer, which is often translucent or transparent, often green or brown, which is chitinous a similar structure to hair or fingernails. And that, that, that often brings the colour in some of the bivalves. So your sunset shells and so on, often it's the outer layer that gives a lot of the colour and the, the shell itself is pale. Buff is the term we often use <laughs> to describe the colour of many of these bivalves. And according to needs or selective pressures, the mollusk can only work with what it has. If you haven't got much carbonate, in the sediment, you can't produce a thick carbonate shell, and then you've got to counterbalance that with the need for a thick shell according to rates of predation or who's who the predators actually are. Many of the predators can drill holes quite comfortably through shells, almost regardless of their thickness. So one of the main predators, or some of the main predators in the deep sea would be octopuses, murex snails, and moon snails, and all three of those can drill holes through shells. Is there a structural element to the shell, or without a sort of predation pressure can they can they be quite soft yes a, a lot of shelled oh, species from what are generally shelled groups have lost their shell altogether so we've got some internal parasites that live inside sea cucumbers which are of groups where every other member of those groups have a fairly normal perfectly thick for their size shell but where they live inside a sea cucumber they're not worrying about predation and those shells have evolved away so the shell is not a strict requirement for many taxa or environments, it is. But again, that comes down to the selective pressures and what minerals are available in the first place for evolution to work with. Okay, okay. But it's not its not providing sort of any bodily structural stuff. It is about pushing through sediment or defending from predation. And It is in the species in which it is, but shells are not inherently necessary for ah. mollusks for structure. So for bivalves that have shells, if you took away the shell, it's going to flop around and die. It's necessary, but you've got some groups where the animal fully envelops the shell and the shell has reduced, maybe not disappeared entirely, but it no longer serves the same function that it used to have. We talk about slugs and snails, but oh, yeah. a surprising number of slugs, including the common garden slug found throughout the world, um, native to Europe and the Mediterranean, that actually has a shell. It's got a tiny white shell where the slug itself might be two, three centimetres and the shell might be be three or four millimetres long. I did not know that. Your most common slugs will often have a little shell inside them. And you could argue whether that's actually serving a structural function at all, whether it's just left over but not such a burden that evolution has sought to get rid of it within just a few generations. One thing we like to do is try and push against the annoying deep sea tropes, but I reckon I can throw it even broader. Is there anything you'd like to set the record straight on? Is there anything that keeps getting propagated? Quite a few, but I don't want to name names. <laughs> One that, that has come up in, in regular conversation is that people keep flipping snails in Photoshop because the, the world looks better going the other way, or it fits nicer into their composition. I don't want to say that that gets me every time in case people I don't like are listening to this, but <laughs> it is remarkable <laughs> how often you're looking at a photo of a snail and the shell coils in the wrong direction. And it makes you realise we, with birds or other animals or plants that don't have that same chirality, how often are these photos artistically or inadvertently flipped by the copy editor or whoever it is that happened to do something? Oh, I think it'd look better going in that direction. Or 
Well, the lighting, this this would flow nice with the other image I wanted to put on the page. So the vast majority of coiled gastropod shells coil in a certain direction. And there are very rare exceptions where, through a, a genetic mishap, they might coil in the wrong direction. And it's, it's an absolute minority, a, a couple of percent at most, of species that naturally, normally coil in, in the sinistral, in the other direction. And there are a few, a few species in the examples that come to mind are terrestrial, unfortunately, where you've got both occurring in relatively high frequency, both sinistrally and dextrally coiled snails, within a conspecific population. And there was an example, I think it's from Europe, where a snail is often eaten by a snake. The main predator is a snail-eating snake. Herpetologists are very creative. <laughs> Not all. It says exactly what it does on the tin. <laughs> True to label. <laughs> it's, it's helpful. If they, if they just had any other name, that would be unhelpful for me. So if I, I take that back. Thank you, <laughs> snake people. But where the snakes would have a asymmetrical jaw where they could more easily feed on snails that coil in a certain direction, we create selection for snails that coil in the, un, the less abundant direction. So you could call it diversifying selection or stabilising selection. If a snake's caught up, yeah. Is there a snake that... There's probably one that got teased by his mates as a youngster, <laughs> but now he gets more snails and he's bigger than the others. And like, oh, strange direction Jim is doing, doing <laughs> old, pretty well. Old wonky Jim is doing quite well for himself. Yeah, it's just a constant arms race. But yeah, I've been, I've been walking around with you and seeing it just sort of tricky. It's like, that, that snail's on backwards. That snail's, that snail's been flipped. It's everywhere. And when you know to look for it. I'm glad you brought that one up, though. That would be probably the best example of things that irk me. I think that's a good. Keep, keep an eye on the snails, folks. They're often, they're often on backwards. Thanks so much for having a chat. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And that was a pressurized version of one of our longer episodes. If you enjoyed that and you would like to hear the full length episode, just match the episode numbers and you'll be able to find the full length version in the feed. Thanks for listening. We'll deep see you next time. And I abyss you already. We're on the ride with the